Welcome to Small Places, the podcast where you can listen to conversations on challenging adultism, understanding children's rights, and fight for children's liberation. I'm your host, Eloise Rickman, and I'll be talking to activists, academics, educators, authors, and those who are on the front lines of this vital work. If you enjoy listening, why not sign up to Small Places on Substack, where you'll find essays, Q&As, and many more resources. You can join for free, or you can subscribe for just £5 a month to support my work and help me bring you more conversations just like this one. Now for this week's episode. Today I'm speaking with Dr Harry Shire. Harry is an independent academic who has worked for decades in the fields of children's rights, children's play and youth participation, both here in the UK and in Nicaragua. And it's especially lovely to be bringing you this conversation today, because today is World Children's Day, where we celebrate the fact that the Convention on the Rights of a Child was adopted by the UN on this day, 20th of November in 1989. Children's rights cover so many different things, from the right to have access to good quality healthcare, the right to be protected in times of war, and the right to play. And one of the rights that we talk about a lot in our conversation is the right to be heard and listened to and have your voice taken seriously, something which many children don't feel is happening to them in their lives. So Harry and I have a long conversation around participation, what youth participation looks like when it's not just tokenistic, and I really hope you're going to enjoy listening. Harry, thank you so much for joining me today. Good morning, it's a pleasure to be here. And I can see, no one else will be able to see this, but I can see that you are filming from somewhere with a beautiful green background behind you. Whereabouts are you speaking to me from in the world? It's a trick. It's a green screen false background. I live in Newbridge, County Kildare in the Republic of Ireland, where I've lived for the past uh, eight years. Um, But most of my most important work was done in Nicaragua in Central America, where I lived from 2001 to 2012. This is a Santa Marta coffee plantation in the mountains in the ah. north of Nicaragua. And uh, some of the most important work uh, I've done was with the children and young people living and working on that plantation. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, I like to pretend my heart is still there. So I like to pretend that I'm still there. And so that explains why. I appear to be on a coffee plantation in the mountains of Nicaragua, but I'm not really. (laughs) What is it that first got you interested in children's rights? And children's rights is a real theme that runs through your work, right from the kind of earliest papers that I've read of yours. Mm -hmm. What was it about that topic that made you sit up and take notice? Um, Well, I started my career in uh, children's play. Um, I was born in, as as I said, in Belfast. I grew up in the North Island. My Family roots are actually in the south of Ireland. My father's from Ballingran in County Limerick, and my mother uh, is from Cork. But um, by the time I was born, they had moved to the north of Ireland. So, uh, so I was born in under the British jackboot in in Belfast mm. and grew up there. And then when I was a teenager, the troubles started, the, the civil war that Irish people laughingly refer to as the troubles. But it was a horrible situation for a teenager growing up. And um, so when I was 18, I escaped to the UK and uh, went to college there. And then, but leaving college, I had no real idea of uh, profession or direction. So I got a job working on an adventure playground. And again, um, I found something that 
that fitted me, that inspired me, that motivated me. I had the chance later on to go and do teacher training, but I felt, well, what I like about working with children, the way I do it is I'm working with children who want to be here working with me. They come because they want, they want to do something and I can help them. School is the other way around. If I became a school teacher, I'd have to work with children who were forced to be there, whether they wanted to or not. And I had to try and make them do the things that I wanted them to do. So yeah. I thought, um, you know, although obviously it's, it's better career prospects, <laughs> it's not what I want to do. And so I, I remained a play worker. Um, and then a few years went on and I realized that I'm not actually that good at it. And I also realized that I'd been very badly trained. Um, right. And 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 that's how I kind of started drifting into, uh, you know, if you can't do it, train others to do it. <laughs> so uh, so I, I got into playwork training, but again, still in the UK. Um, and then in 1993, I got the chance to attend a big international conference. It was called the World Play Summit. It was some of the big international uh, children's play organizations including the Association for the Child's Right to Play, they're meeting in Melbourne, Australia, and they got some funding. And uh, this was 1993. So the Convention on the Rights of the Child had been um, uh, published um, in 89. It came into force in, in 1990. The United Kingdom had um, ratified it in 92. So it was very, very new. And hardly anybody in the UK or indeed in Ireland had heard of it at that time. So at this uh, play summit in Melbourne, People were talking about uh, Article 31, and it, that you know it, it was a bit of jargon. But Article 31 is one of the articles in the Convention on the Rights of the Child, and it's the one that says every child has the right to play. And I thought, oh my God, this is. I have been for the last um, ten years. I have been promoting, defending, reclaiming the child's right to play in everything I've been doing. I just didn't realize, and so I was so inspired to to realize that children had the right to play. <laughs> and I came back from, from Australia and immediately I became kind of sort of, uh, uh, it was my mission to, to make the United Kingdom aware of the child's right to play. That play is not just something we don't need, just need to provide playgrounds because we need to keep the children occupied when they're not at school and they need fresh air and exercise. No, this is a basic human right that needs to be defended. So I started a, a national network, again, the, the uh, Art, Article 31 Action Network. We held a big national conference um, and published a report and so on. And in the course of that, um, I started meeting other children's rights experts and they said, you know, um, one of the fundamental principles of the convention that underpins everything else we do is the child's right to be heard, Article 12. Um, and, and this works two ways in children's play because in their play is the one place where children can make their own decisions. So it's almost implicit that children are able to decide what to do in their play, though not in their school or you know many other aspects of their lives. Um, but at the same time, nobody really consults them much, at least in those days, nobody was consulting them much about the, the kind of play services, the kind of play provision, the kind of play opportunities that existed in communities. This was architects and planners were making those decisions. Um, and so I started to realize that although my what had brought, drawn me to children's rights was the right to play, 
that equally important and fundamental was this underpinning principle that the child has a right to be heard, a right to be involved mm -hmm. in decision making. And I never look back. Just hearing you talk about the right to play, and I absolutely want to come back to participation shortly because I have lots to ask you about that. But it's striking hearing you talk about the right to play, which is something that, as you say, you know, we this isn't a new idea that children have this right to play or that children need access to play areas, spaces where they can be themselves without adult interference. And yet, still now in 2023 in the UK, I'm hearing two things over and over again. I'm hearing from families and children where play areas in their local spaces are completely falling apart. They're being closed because there's no money to upkeep them. They have bins full of needles and beer cans. They're just really unsafe, unwelcoming places for young people to spend time. And I'm also hearing from so many parents whose children are losing out at playtime at school Often it's children who are neurodivergent, who have strong needs for autonomy, for play, and where that right to play is being really clamped down. And I think that we still need a real strong reminder that children do have this right to play and it is a fundamental right. Yeah, I couldn't I couldn't agree more. And and, and yeah, all, all, all the things you say are, are quite right. Um, and, um, you know, it, it's easy to think back to my childhood um when play you could play in the street you could go out to play there were fields mm. behind the house it, it was quite idyllic in that way but nowadays we live in a world where children are surrounded by so much restriction um and as you just said even where a little space is set aside that is supposedly going to be the children's play space that is such a low priority in anybody's agenda that it, it's just not fit for purpose um, and, um, I've come to also, I've come to realize, uh, quite recently, really, that the most important, um, necessity for children to have available to them to enjoy their right to play is not playgrounds. It's not necessarily their parents. It's not toys. It's not games. It's other children. Mm. If there's one thing we can give our children that will enrich and enhance, uh, their realization, their enjoyment of the right to play, it's the chance to be with other children. Because when children are together, the play happens naturally. And the adult role is just, you know, we're looking out for safety, we're looking out for bullying, we're looking out for what equipment do they need that we can help them find, we're looking out for what problems are they encounter. So, you know, so, so as long as the children are together, the adults don't have to be players. Another theme which runs through your work, which has been of particular interest to me, which I think really links to this, is this idea that we live in a society which can be called an adultist society, where children's needs, children's experiences are just not valued as much as they should be. And for anyone who's unfamiliar with the term adultism, can you just give us a, a brief definition? Or I know that you have done loads of interesting work in trying to define that, that word and why it's so important. It's, it's easy to... Um see it as a comp as comp comparable with things like racism and, and sexism the idea that um uh children need to be liberated from their oppression uh in in the way that that women struggled for liberation uh, that black people struggled for liberation that disabled people struggle still struggle in many ways cases for liberation and so on um 
But I think that's often not helpful because of the special position of children in our lives and in our families. Um, adults have to bring up children. Children can't bring up adults. Adults have to protect children. Children can't protect adults. Uh, adults have to uh, do what they can to help children learn, get educated, but children don't have to do the same. So it's not, it's not a, a relation of sameness. And because of that, people see it as a relation of inequality, that the adults mm -hmm. are on top and the children below. The adults are superior. The adult, the adult is in some way, and people don't even define it. Certainly in families, people don't even define it. But the adult has a greater value, is somehow worth more than the child. And it's not said. And I bet no parent will ever say it to you. But if you look at the way households are run, schools are run, uh, communities are run, they're run as if the adult has more value and what matters to the adult comes first and what matters to the child, if at all, comes second. And uh, what matters to the child can be interpreted by the adult anyway. So uh, my definite, and this is something that, that I worked on for years with my colleagues in Nicaragua. Um, when I was working in Nicaragua, I was working as part of the local team of Nicaraguan people uh, who were all working together on, on these issues. Um, and that's where we developed this idea that, uh, that uh, adultism is a set of beliefs that uh, regards in some implicit way the child as being of less value than the adult, but it also then becomes a set of practices and behaviors that grow out of that belief that we see in families. Mm -hmm. Like adults can hit children, but uh, children can't hit adults. There's you know, many, many more examples. Absolutely. So much hypocrisy. And I think alongside adultism, you've also written about the fact that this goes along with so many assumptions and stereotypes around children and what their capacities are and what their capabilities are and how rational or irrational they may be. And that, as you say, this leads then it isn't just somewhere out there, these harmful beliefs, but they lead into practices, they lead into policies. Um, and I'm sure this is something you've seen a lot in your work. One, one of the things about living and working in Nicaragua for many years is that you see these things uh, shown up more starkly. Um, child labor, for example, on coffee plantations like the, the one behind me. And, and in a way, it's, it's, it's not that straightforward. The family needs uh, income to survive the year. And the only time that uh, there's plenty of money to be earned is harvest time. So the whole family has to head off for the coffee plantation to work at harvest time. So the adults then just assume that the kids are going to work on the coffee plantation. Nobody asked them. And it becomes part of the way of life. The problem was um, that, that we were dealing with was that where, if and when the kids went back to school, uh, the, coffee, the coffee harvest sort of starts in November and runs through to February. And uh, in Nicaragua, the school, the school year is like January to December. So when the kids went back to school, um, they'd missed the start of the year. And in fact, they'd missed the end of the last year and they hadn't done their tests or anything. So if they'd done second, if they'd done second year or second grade, they were told they had to do it again. Right. Okay. <laughs> and this led to school dropout. And uh, so, so the kids had no, they had no prospect in life, but just to carry mm. on picking coffee because the adults hadn't valued school. It, the the yeah. necessity of going out and earning some money on the coffee harvest uh, was more important than finishing your school year. So this is just an example of how, you know, the children's needs were seen as less important 
less yeah. valuable and they were they ended up suffering there's a whole area there's a whole area around uh, child abuse and sexual exploitation and so on as well which similarly where uh, and that's one of the starkest examples we'd have where children are quite quite literally exploited to meet adults wishes mm. needs uh with nobody thinking at all about valuing the child's point of view and again we, we campaigned long and hard about all kinds of against all kinds of violence to children these are some like like the very stark uh shocking examples but in little ways even in nice comfortable middle class families in ireland and england that idea is there that it's really this family is really about what the adults want to do and like you say as well, you know, we have this right, we have these beautiful right to play, but we also have a right for children to have their voices heard. Mm -hmm. And I think this is something where, again, so many, you know, I work in my, my day job, I work with parents. And these are parents who are actively signing up to courses to try and incorporate children's rights into their parenting to try and be more aware of children's rights. And yet, I think so many of us as parents are still struggling at times to shake off our own upbringings which say that your voice matters less than your parents voice and that fundamentally the buck stops with the parents in terms of making decisions and this is something I'm really trying in my own parenting with my daughter to let go of and try and equalize those decisions but it is really hard when this is something that you haven't been raised to do and when your own upbringing has been very different and in some ways uh, the buck actually does stop with the parents because like I said at the end of the day the parents do have to ensure their children's safety mm. the parents do have to ensure their children's survival the parents the, the conventional rights of the child do say that the parents are expected to guide their children in the exercise and enjoyment of their rights and, and this is not reciprocal yeah so in that limited sense the buck does stop with the parents and I think parents need to feel confident the uh, the the Again, I've written another time about how uh, in the 60s and 70s, there was a, a rather extremist uh, um, doctrine of child liberation that, that was yeah. fashionable. This was kind of like in hippie times when anything goes, that children should have all the same rights as adults and be able to make all decisions the same way as adults do, that there should be no legal distinction between children and adults. Um, but that creates problems because then there is no guidance for children and they become mm. vulnerable because uh, there's nobody to stop them doing things that are going to harm them. <laughs> so, yeah. so there's a line in Article 12, the article in the convention that specifically talks about the child's right to be heard that says that the, the children's views are taken into account in accordance with the age and maturity of the child. So mm. there's a whole sort of discourse about this uh, how are we going to understand that and uh, a key notion here is the evolving capacities of the child yeah the child must be listened to at every age uh, even babies if we can ascertain what message they're trying to tell us even before they speak they're trying to get messages across to us one way or another with looks and laughs and 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 cries and and so on uh, we have to be be aware and 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 that carries on through life. We we have to be hearing in inverted commas, mm. like trying to trying to 
uh, access the the communi communication that the, the child is making. And then as they grow up, they will tell us much more clearly what their ideas are, what their thinking is, what their preferences are, what they want to do, uh, and so on. Adults have to take this into account in accordance with the age and maturity of the child. So um, with very, very young children, for example, we can quite happily um, uh, let them put on the clothes of the color that they prefer rather than the color that we prefer, uh, that their decision can come first. But with young children, we can't, we may decide they want to try uh, drinking, drinking alcohol, drinking wine, and we may say, no, I'm going to forbid that because although I've heard your opinion, I understand that you're telling me this in accordance with your age and maturity, I actually have to forbid it until yes. you're older. And there's nothing in children's rights that prevents parents from doing that. As long as they're hearing what the child is saying and doing their mm -hmm. best to understand where it's coming from. And the, they may talk to children a bit about alcohol and, and, and when they think it'll be appropriate for the child to try alcohol and why they're so, why the parents are so against the children drinking alcohol. And, you know, yeah. you may try and try and reach a better understanding between the parent and child. Again, it's all about age and maturity. I hope this is making sense. Absolutely, it is. Yeah. And I think we've discussed briefly over email before this idea of, you know, can we take, because the writers of the 70s, you know, A.S. Neil, John Holt, were writing before the Convention on the Rights of a Child was published, was ratified. And I know that you've written about this idea that in our response to adultism, this doesn't need to look like an equality, complete legal equality. Because actually we might want to protect children from having sexual relationships with grown-ups, or we might want to protect them from watching terrifying horror films before or they're ready cars. to be able to do that. Or driving cars or many <laughs> other things, you know, buying weapons. <laughs> we yeah. can, I'm sure, list yeah. many different yeah. things. But what I love is you bring it back to actually what they do need equality of is equality in being able to access rights and equality in kind of just treating them with human dignity as yeah. well. Mm -hmm. And I think that's such a powerful way of phrasing this. Children can still be held in equal regard, even if they can't do exactly the same things and have exactly the same responsibilities as adults mm -hmm. and I think that provides a really practical framework to be able to make sense of these sometimes quite contradictory or confusing ideas um also what you were saying in terms of children's right to be heard and to be listened to and especially as they get older to be able to be really considering what it is that they want to say and taking that into account is you've done so much work around this idea of participation. And I think sometimes if people don't know very much about it, it can sound a bit like a buzzword, a bit like empowerment, which again, we may well come back to later on in our conversation, because I know you have thoughts on this too. Um, but I love this idea that participation is a, is a right that children have to be heard, to be listened to, to be taken seriously. And you have done some really interesting work looking at how children can have that participation kind of facilitated, but also embedded into processes. And I wondered if we could talk a little bit about that, maybe starting with your original idea around this pathways to participation model that you developed. Yeah, um, I, I think I want to start knowing that our, your audience is to a large degree parents. My work on participation has largely been around what well, I suppose you might call institutional settings of various kind, yeah. uh, and less so in the family home. But I think a lot of what people have found, a lot of what I've said actually applies in the family home if you, yes. if you think it through. I started 
this as I, I was explaining, I was telling you at the, at the start of our, our conversation that I started out in uh, the right to play and, and uh, created an Article 31 Action Network. And um, Article 31, it, 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 it does say that children have the right to play, but it also says they have the right to participate freely in cultural life and the arts. Mm. And we found that by creating a, an alliance with the people in the culture and arts sector, they had a lot more resources mm. <laughs> and, and they, they had a lot more influence than the people in children's play. So we kind of came together, creative play, culture, arts, uh, heritage and so on. And we were talking about how we're promoting the right to play, the right to be heard, the right to have a say in cultural life and the arts. Um, we want, we need to do something. We need, um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? A, a showcase, something clear that people can see what we mean. So that it's not just waffle, it's not just words. So we came up with the idea of, basically at that time, this was again, late seventies, um, cultural institutions, by which I mean things like art galleries, museums, concerts, um, concert halls, um, art centers, all those kind of places, they, they'd come to the notion of child friendly, family friendly, and they, they wanted to be family friendly, child friendly, and they wanted advice. And they would come to people like me and my colleagues and say, could you help us? We need some expert advice on how to mm -hmm. make our, our museum child friendly. And our great idea was, well, we're not the experts on what's child friendly. Who are the experts on what's child friendly? The children. They will tell you what's child friendly and what's not. They'll tell you what makes them feel welcome. Like if we're, one of our first clients, and I'm very proud to say this, was the Victorian Albert Museum in, in London. You know, so the children will tell you when they walk into the Victorian Albert Museum, what makes them feel welcome? What makes mm. them feel this is for us? And what makes them feel this is boring? This is not for us. <laughs> um, uh, but... At that point, nobody working in these major cultural institutions had any idea of how to find out, to access, if you like, the children's expertise. Yeah. And that's where we came in. Rather than people like me being experts, going to tell the managers at the VNA how to be more child friendly, we were able to offer to them to organize a team of child consultants who will come and look at your museum mm. and they will then and this was very important part of our our uh proposal we insisted on a face-to-face -face meeting so that the child consultants would tell the senior management to their faces their ideas about what could be done um and this worked really well the 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 pilots worked very well and uh we started getting more requests whatever institution uh contacted us we were able to find an after-school play center or a, or a children's club or something and say would any of the, the kids who come here on a regular basis be interested in being a consultant and often they would not have a clue what we meant but it was very easy yes. to explain <laughs> what was on offer here and it's like you know we, nobody would <laughs> didn't need to twist people's arms so we were mm. able to, to 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 find teams of of child consultants uh, and and there was a, a, we developed a system of of what we need to do to prepare them, uh, how's it how's it going to work step by step and so on, and then uh, as it got more popular, I started training other adults to facilitate because I couldn't you know there were more requests coming in and I could lead. <laughs> um, yeah. Anyway, 
this went on for several years and but unfortunately as this was happening um i was coming to the conclusion that england was not my home and never would be that my time in england was coming to an end the the civil war in northern ireland had more or less come to an end by then but because my experience my parents had died and because my experience of growing up during the troubles in northern ireland had been so negative i really had no desire to go back to where i came from so i was looking at where where am i going to go with my life and then i thought okay so if i'm going to make a major change here i want to leave something behind i've been living in in england for 25 years and england has actually been quite good to me because as an irish person i was quite middle class in appearance and presentation and spoke with a nice accent and and you know was educated i didn't meet the anti-irish prejudice that was at that time thriving in england yes. uh, so england 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 actually treated me quite well um so i'm thinking what am i going to leave behind and i thought well really i've learned an awful lot from these children that we've been working with by that time we know we'd worked with hundreds um and the the way they have genuinely influenced major institutions for the better uh, i wonder you know if i can capture what i've learned from that experience in some concrete way and it crystallized into a diagram basically <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, and although, you know, parents sitting at home may never have seen it, but anybody working in this field will have seen it, the Pathways to Participation diagram, because um, and it, it was it was definitely a case of standing on the shoulders of giants because part of it was genuinely my own uh, innovative thinking, but it was built on the thinkers who had gone before particularly Sherry Arnstein, Roger Hart, you know, the idea of a ladder of participation, particularly Roger Hart's ladder of children's participation, that there are different stages or levels at which we can we can envisage children having a say in things. Yeah. And there are various levels at which we can envisage children being prevented from having a say in things, what I call false participation. So this idea of a ladder of levels of participation already existed. Um, and I took that and simplified it I said well there are five things I see happening in my work children have to be listened to um but children have to be helped to express themselves because um children don't always feel that they can say what they want say what they think yeah. express an opinion so the fact that the adult says I'm listening is not always enough um so that's the next stage children's being supported to express and then um what children tell us being taken into account of decision making and this is the critical level because that is our duty as adults if we accept the convention on the rights of the child it's our duty to listen to what children have to tell us it's our duty to support them in telling us it's our duty to take what they tell us into account when decisions mm. have to be made that affect children's lives and then you go up above and there is the children and young people being involved in making decisions because what often happens is children have a level of participation which you might call consultative we do ask them we do find out what they think we have a focus group or we <laughs> we have a children's committee or we have a children's advisory group or whatever it might be we even have the child consultants um and and they so we're hearing and taking on board um what what they want 
But when it comes to making the decisions, the adults lock themselves away in a, in a yeah. committee room and decide what's going to happen. So to move from hearing what the children are telling us to making decisions together is a major step. And it's mm. that actually, in my opinion, that is not our legal duty. But in terms of the society we want to live in, it's a very important step to an equal and fair society. And actually, it improves the services that so many people depend on when decisions can be made jointly. And then you get to the next top level, which is sharing power and responsibility, where you're getting into sort of more of the child liberation area. And that can happen in some areas, but it's not going to happen in all areas. Yeah. So so those are my five levels. But but this that idea was not, not particularly new. What, what, what was new, and I think the reason why my... New, new diagram attracted so much attention uh, was the idea of focusing on the adults attitude and the adults the stages that adults went through in terms of commitment so yeah. three there were three stages of commitment first is are you ready and willing to do this so the very bottom we have are you ready and willing to listen to children and then as we go up are you ready and ready and willing to to take into account what children tell us in decision making and then are you ready to to let children join in your decision making. Mm. But then the next level is to be in a position where that can happen. You know, and particularly talking about people working in institutional organizations. Like, so if you're working in a school, it may be one thing to say, as a teacher, I'm always ready to listen to children. But really, the everyday life of a classroom teacher, you know, uh, there's not much I can do because I've yeah. got to teach them. So the next stage is, are you working in a way that makes this possible? Mm -hmm. And that may mean changes have to be made in the way we do things so that we're actually in a position to. So are you working in a way that makes it possible to take into account what children say when decisions have to be made? And so that was the second level. And the third level is where this is written down as a policy. Uh, it's the policy of this school, this this social services department, this museum, this children's club, that what that we listen to children and take into account what they tell us. And I called... <clears throat> those three stages openings opportunities and obligations the opening occurs when the adult says yes i believe this i'm willing to do this but the opportunity occurs when their working situation and working practices make it a real possibility and the obligation occurs when it's written down saying in our nursery we always listen to what children have to say and we always take into mm. account and it's a requirement everybody who works in that nursery it's an obligation so uh it, it was pathways to participation, openings, opportunities, and obligations. And the diagram kind of used a sort of matrix format, a kind of a flow chart. Somebody said it's a flow chart embedded in a matrix. To, <laughs> You're to... making it sound very complicated, but I can yeah, promise to anyone listening it, to this, it, 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 it's yeah, really it, beautiful to yeah. see. Go and, and Google and it. Just it just gives you very simple, simple, understandable questions you can ask yourself. Yeah. And it'd be interesting. It would be interesting to, to parents to say, where, how, if our family was an, was an organization, Definitely. <laughs> a mini organization, where would we stand? What I can imagine, and you've already talked about this a little bit in terms of the example of a school teacher who might say, look, I'd love to be able to do more of this, but actually structurally, I don't have the support in place to be able to listen to every single complaint or idea of every single child in my classroom. But I think there are other barriers as well to children being able to actually have this participation realised. Um some of which are structural barriers, but also some of which might be 
perhaps less generously adults kind of taking these processes, paying lip service to participation, but sort of co-opting children into their own agendas and ideas, Mm -hmm. using it as a kind of look how well we've included children's participation, but not really, you know, following the letter, but not the spirit. Is this something that you have seen or is this something that frustrates you still? Absolutely. Um, And it's something that I keep saying. um, It's not it's not addressed enough. There's not mm. much literature on it in the academic world. There's not, um, and it's not something I address directly in my own early work. Uh, but to this day, I go back to what I mentioned already: Roger Hart's 1992 Ladder of Children's Participation, still, still the most famous, I guess, of of the models, because he was the one. Um, Ro- Roger Hart, he's a a British-born academic who's worked in New York for all his all his um, professional life, um, and he had a wonderful opportunity. And this, and and I've, I'm very honoured that I met him early on when I when I was interested in in uh, got interested in children's rights. And he came over to address the conference that I organised in Birmingham in 1994. And his work was very influential on me. And I still go back to that original ladder because uh, because he was asked. Uh, very early on when the Convention on the Rights of the Child was first being promoted, but he was asked by UNICEF to go and look at um, events and activities around the world with children's participation. And he found a lot of them were really falling short. Mm. And so the bottom three rungs of his ladder are um, what he called non-participation. I, I prefer to call them false participation, um, uh, manipulation, decoration and tokenism. And in a in a nutshell, manipulation is where uh, the, there's an appearance of children having a say, but it's all being done to promote the interests and aims of the adults. The adults already know what they want to get out of it. And yeah. I think by organizing a consultation with children, this will help us. Yeah, and this this kind of thing happens in schools a lot. So that's the manip- manipulative bit. It's specifically the intent of the the the, the using of the appearance of participation to achieve something that is what the adults want to do and the children not being not being honestly informed about this and then decoration is where the children are invited often to you know large-scale event to show here are the children yes and often often they're they're asked to to do a folk dance or maybe put on a little role play thing or sometimes given t-shirts to wear or even as Roger Hart said in some big United Nations event, they would be welcoming the delegates and showing them to their seats. <laughs> so like <laughs> children are just decorating the adult event wow. to give a show. And that's still I saw that happen in a conference last year um, and tweeted about it. It's less common now, but you need to be on the lookout. And then the third one is tokenism. Yeah. And that's where a um a, a small number of children are involved. And again, it's to it's 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 mainly to create the appearance that there has been a children participation, a token being something that looks like it looks like it's uh, maybe a, a coin, but doesn't have actually any real value. Mm, yeah. <laughs> so, 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 yeah, so you so you you create the impression that the children's participation is happening, but nobody's actually paying any attention at the end of the day to what has come out of it. There's no influence on decisions. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So those still happen. Um, I, I still see evidence of them. They're still reported. Um, 
and not a lot uh, in the literature addressing them. It's one of the things I keep saying, you know, if if I had the opportunity, I'd love to seriously do some more research and investigate mm. these things more deeply, but I just haven't got, haven't done it. Yeah. And I wonder as well, you know, kind of slightly linked to this idea of tokenism, where you might only have a small number of children. I also wonder in those situations, if the children that we might hear from are children who are more likely in general to have their voices heard. So they might be, for example, in the UK, they might be white children, they might be middle class children, they might be children going to schools which have the resources or time or facilities to um, enable them to take part in events. They might be children who are not disabled. Um, and on the flip side, I'm wondering, for example, if you have, let's take disabled children who might have differences in the way that they communicate, you know, are we really doing enough societally to listen to all children, but especially to listen to those children who might require more support to be able to get those voices listened to? Yes, yes, absolutely. You're right. Um, and 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 this is well documented. Um, there, it, there's a tendency to take the easy option, which is to listen to the most convenient children. And mm. they may be the ones that, that you mention. Um, and in some cases, this still does happen. Um, because you know you're operating on the basis of self-selection you know I, I'm, yeah. I'm at the moment in the in the process of creating a children's advisory group um and it happens to be for the museum of childhood in ireland so so i want to find kids who like the idea of yes you know i'm a member of the the museum's children's advisory group so what what kind of and and it basically also because i need their parents permission a lot of the reach out has to go through the parents the parents have oh, to okay. sign up for the kids and so on so it's kids whose parents would like them to be on the museum advisory right. well. yes so yeah so there's there is definitely this this um it's kind of with inertia you will get the most convenient children and that that's yeah. bound to happen um and so the the way we have to approach it is um at three levels first with reach out uh, sometimes the reason you get the most convenient children is because they're the ones who've heard about it anyway, because nobody's told all the other children. So yeah. in your reach out, you make special efforts to to get the message out to the children who might easily be ignored, who might not hear about it. Uh, and in my case, that means trying to find and contact those organizations in Ireland that are working with, say, refugees and migrants who are working with disabled children and mm. working with traveler children and asking them, will you help me spread the word to the children you work with and their families and their communities to make sure they hear about this and encourage them? So that's the first thing. And then you have to make sure that they hear about it. But then if they if they do um, decide, OK, I'll give it a go that they feel welcome, that they feel part of it. So the whole yeah. way that you run things, the way you facilitate whatever activity you're doing with the children, is it being run in such a way that everybody says, yes, this is for me. Yes, I am I recognize myself here. I feel part of this. So that's the other thing. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, making them feel safe and comfortable and, and, and welcome. The methods, the, the ways of working that we use, often these kind of participatory activities just mimic the way adults do things it's a bit like a committee or a focus group or a working group or you know an advisory group and it just works the same way except that we just try and use simpler language but if you really want to hear younger children 
like under eights preschool, then you can't do that. You can't have a committee and ask everybody what they think. <laughs> so you have to have a completely different way of working with yeah. those children to take on board their ideas. And the same would apply with um, um, children with disabilities, um, uh, particularly those that, that limit their intellectual disabilities, that limit their communication. Again, you yeah. can't just... On the other hand, I have been forced to recognize that the, our online working, which I... I started out disliking, still dislike. I mean, I, I've I've had to run advisory groups and 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 um, things with children on Zoom. First of yeah. all, during COVID, and then simply because it actually, in some ways, at least in Ireland, in Ireland, where only the only the um, the most socially excluded can't get access to a device. Um, if you have a meeting on Zoom, a lot of children who couldn't travel to a meeting in the community center. Yeah, uh, rural children, wheelchair users, whatever, uh, they can join on an equal basis. Now that might not be true in Africa or or um, or South America, but but in a place like Ireland, it is. So, yeah, different different ways of working help you to mm. reach more people and avoid discrimination and exclusion. And I have a a, a kind of follow on question about participation as well, which is. I am really interested in the work that you've done, obviously, in Nicaragua with children. And when you talk about participation in Nicaragua, and pr you can correct me if I'm pronouncing this wrong, CESESMA, mm -hmm. yeah. which, which is the organization for um, people who work, is it children specifically, CESESMA? Yes, it's... It, it... It used it started out as a set of initials, the Center for Education in Health and Environment, and it was set up by rural school teachers who believed that the standard curriculum being offered in local primary schools was not helping. Then around the time I got there, they asked me to get involved in creating their first strategic plan. And the the move coming from the team, not from me, was it's all about helping these children promote and defend their rights. So we adopted the strap line, promoting promotion and defense of children's rights. And although the initials still stand for education, health and environment, it's now SESMA, promotion and defense of children's rights. So Yeah. And it's been so interesting reading about how children of all ages are participating in really meaningful ways in those communities and how there is so much we talked about how adults can manipulate sometimes or can use children kind of tokenistically but in some of the examples you've given you really see older children teenagers adults really supporting younger children to develop the skills that they need to be able to take on leadership roles in the community and it's just a really powerful example and I wondered if you could just give a little summary of how that looks because I think to a lot of people they haven't seen that kind of work in action. Mm. Yes, it, it it was new to me. Um, it, uh, it's um, distinctively Latin American and uh, Sesesma then had developed its own version. And it was called um, the, the young the teenagers who became young community community education activists uh, were called promotor if it's a boy and promotora if it's a girl. So promotores y promotores. I tend not to translate it, but if you say, what is it? It's a, a young community education activist, people who take yeah. an active role in community education in their own community. And that means working with, with younger children. And um, so one of the, one of the 
important pieces of work that I did with Successmos was, was developing our training program for these teenage promotores, promotores, helping them to, to, first of all, deepen their own knowledge about some of the social issues that were problematic in the communities, uh, about children's rights, about gender, about child abuse, about um, child labor and so on. And then uh, looking at ways of working with younger children in their community mm. to spread the word. And uh, I mean, it wasn't all issue based. A lot of it was arts and crafts. They're like being, they were folk dance groups. They were arts and crafts groups. There was a huge organic gardening, vegetable growing thing. All these things kind of linked together. Um, yeah. And then young children, so young, young children, these were rural, small communities. So a great thing was that people tended to know each other and know what was going on. And, if, even, and there were, this was before social media. So it was like all word of mouth in a small village community, uh, like maybe 50, 60 years ago in Ireland. Um, so the younger kids would know what was going on and they would know that such and such was, was uh, uh, organizing a dance group or such and such was going to organize a, a girls group or that such and such was organizing a group to talk about the problems working on the coffee plantation or that assessment was coming in to, mm -hmm. you know, so, so again, there was no problem with it. The, and also the children there, ironically, although often there was quite a heavy burden of child labor, there wasn't a lot else of interest in their lives. So if something was going on in the community, it was quite easy to get them to, to right. volunteer and, and join in. So, uh, so yeah, so that, that was, that was, I, I think that is a wonderful way to work and it would be great if it could be uh, reproduced in the Irish or British yeah. situation. But uh, yeah, Absolutely. it was very much a, it was very much of that place and time and a wonderful way of working. Mm. Well, thank you for sharing that. Yeah, I love that idea of having teenagers being the ones who are training and supporting younger children. It feels like such a great model. And I feel like here in the UK, where teenagers often have such a bad reputation, mm -hmm. that feels yeah. like something which would yeah, benefit so many different people. It's a really great model. And it's worth saying, in terms of education, it definitely works both ways, because obviously the young kids are learning lots of new stuff. Mm. They, they go along to a group and they're learning new skills they're learning new new ideas they're learning to do new things but the the teenagers through facilitation are learning so much they're developing their yes. leadership skills Absolutely. and there are now a lot of examples of those young people going on to become adult they're now young adults the ones i work with as teenagers are young adults now and many of them are young leaders in various ways and they all choose their different directions and you know do their own thing but those mm. leadership skills that they've gained uh, stand them in good stead yeah it feels very different from the kind of thing you might get in a british school of like oh we'll do a model un session or something it's like real skills that can mm. really be put into mm. practice yeah. um before uh, you've been so generous with your time but i can just sneak in if you don't mind one more question which is something i've been mm. really looking forward to talking to you about as well and we mentioned this right at the start but You've spoken really interestingly about this idea of empowerment mm -hmm. and what the word means and how I think you wrote somewhere, and forgive me for not remembering exactly where I saw you write this, but that sometimes empowerment can almost be disguised as a kind of form of social control. And that sometimes as adults, we can use this idea of empowerment in ways which don't necessarily really support children's rights or 
for for us to move away from adultism and I'm just interested in this because I hear the idea of empowerment a lot it's a word you hear sometimes in feminism in different spaces as well but I'm interested in your thoughts you know can can children be empowered by adults or should we be using or looking for different language uh right yes yeah um yeah empowerment um it was something that was in the air a lot in our work in Nicaragua that, and, and again, it's not like we are empowering these young people, but we did feel we really need to take a step back and try and get a clear what we mean by this. And uh, after a lot of thinking and discussion involving the young people as well, we came up with the idea that, that there are three elements that all need to be in place if we're to say that somebody has genuinely uh, become empowered. Um, the, the skills, knowledge, and and um, abilities, which are stuff that yeah. they can learn, and what I was just talking to you about before was the the if you like the 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 delivering of opportunities to gain that new skills, new knowledge, new abilities. Yeah, and that makes you enabled. But we're saying that doesn't that is that is different from being empowered. You're enabled mm. because you've got these knowledge and abilities. And then the second one was the conditions, because yeah. if you live in very oppressive conditions. It may be that that the pressure on you is such that you can't break out, that you can't use your your power. So we have to find ways to to, uh, for example, especially with girls in Nicaragua, there was a lot of uh, sort of uh, sexism. What in in um, in Spanish is called machismo, the idea of the the manly man who's in charge, and the woman who submits to the manly man. Uh, so that was very much a, a, a an idea in 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 that time and in that place so you have to talk to the parents and you have to say um you know it, it would commonly be thought it's fine for the lads to just go out and do whatever yeah. if they want to go to a meeting if they want to go to a course if they want to go to something that's fine but the girls it would be dangerous they better stay at home their mum needs them to help with the kids uh so we don't want the girls going out and people will talk badly of them and they'll get they'll they'll get off with the men they'll get pregnant and we don't want it happening so so you have to uh, work at every level there you have to talk with yeah. the parents and start helping them to rethink that in mm. fact you know the girls are learning about gender issues uh about uh, um um protection prevention of abuse and so on they're un learning to understand sex and sexuality they're not going to be more at risk of getting pregnant they're going to be able yes. to, to make decisions for themselves and mm. so on and and then you're working at the same time let's say the the young people are learning new skills and new thinking so you're working at every level so uh it's not just about um the new skills knowledge that the young people have it's about the conditions that make it possible for them to, to mm. achieve to do things and then the third one was this idea of sense of self uh the self-belief as someone who is an agent of change and this is missing uh from not just children adults people just don't think what can i do uh, and yeah, that's where absolutely. you have disempowerment so once we decided we need to if we're talking about empowerment looking at these three levels yes we can we the adults can teach stuff to the kids or at least we can create opportunities for the kids to learn this stuff and we can work to improve the the oppressive circumstances that are stopping them from doing things but we can't change the way they think about themselves but mm. what we can try to do is is 
create these processes, these situations, these interactions where they're able to change their own mm. self-image, their own, they raise their self-esteem, raise their confidence, understand themselves as a person with rights who can defend those rights. So that this third part, and that's why we came to say, uh, no one can empower anyone. We can enable them. We can improve their living conditions, but the empowerment has to, the third part that makes the empowerment is the part that has to come to within. And we can facilitate process, but you have to take that opportunity uh, and and uh, change the way you see yourself if it's to be not just ability or capacity, but actual empowerment. I think that is such an interesting idea because I think we hear a lot as parents around, well, you can just build up your child's self-esteem and it feels like this is something where schools and parents are constantly being told, you know, this is something that we can do as adults. You can build your child's self-esteem by doing these activities or telling them certain things. And I think that really misses something. And I love the fact that you say, look, you can't do this to someone, but you can create conditions for them to develop those beliefs about themselves and that actually those beliefs mm. really you can't divorce them from the conditions around them or from mm. the capacities the knowledge the skills so i think that's a really it's really great that you were able to bring those things together and i'm sure lots of people listening will be thinking lots about those as well harry you have been so generous with your time today thank you so much i've really enjoyed our conversation and i'm sure everyone listening will also really want to read more about your work you have a great website which has lots of your writing on it and what I really appreciate about it is that you make it really accessible for people to find your work and to read it I think there's a big problem with academic writing where it's often paywalled hidden away not made accessible and what I love is that almost all of your work possibly all of your work is either available to freely download or you say well look you can email me for an unofficial copy too so can you just remind us of your website and I'll also put a link in the show notes as well yes it's www.harryshire that's my first name and last name, H-A-R-R-Y-S-H-I-E-R dot net. No space, Brilliant. no nothing. And yes, indeed, I try to make everything free. In the academic world, sometimes you're made to sign agreements that um, you won't publish stuff. Sometimes there, you, know, so you, said, you said a paywall. This is the way the academic publishing world funds itself. Uh, and I have had uh, letters from academic publishers saying that I've broken the contract because I've said on my website that I'll send you a free copy of this paper if you want it, which I have ignored. <laughs> because I, think, <laughs> I think the academic publisher is doing very, very well. Thank you. Um, yeah. So anything that's not brand new is almost certainly going to be available to download from my website. And if it is brand new, you'll have to actually contact me because the publisher, the academic publishers won't let you give it away freely unless, but, but always as an academic, you can share your work with others. So, yeah. Amazing. Thank you so much. And are you on any other social media sites? Are you on yeah, Twitter? I am, or I, is it I'm, X on, now? I'm on the I'm on the yeah, the the site formerly known as Twitter. I <laughs> I really wish there was an alternative because I despise yeah. Elon Musk and everything that he does. Um but be you know, because like so many of us have built up those networks and, and none of the alternatives yet are offering the same the same kind of a space. So I'm hoping yeah. that eventually uh, something else will come along but yes at the moment I am on Twitter slash X and it's uh, at Shire Harry 
same brilliant in that case it's it's last last name first first name second no space super well i am not on there so i can't sadly follow you but i'm sure lots of people listening will be so yeah and i'm sure they will be able to follow your work thank you so much again thanks so much for listening if you enjoyed our conversation why not sign up to small places on substack where you'll get podcasts essays q and a's and many more resources straight to your inbox You can join for free or subscribe for just £5 a month to support my work and help me bring you more conversations just like this one. I'll see you next week. Bye for now.